So tonight we consider Lord's Day 3, question and answer 6 through 8. And so I'll invite you to read aloud responsibly the answers to these questions. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Leave that open before you, and now, if you'd like to... Follow along, I'll be reading from Genesis 1, verse 26 to 31, and then Romans chapter 5, 12, 15 and 9 to 19. So first Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And now from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12 and then jumping to 15 to 19. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Now, can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass, trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, 
so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So far, the reading of God's word, may the Holy Spirit add his blessing to it as we consider it this evening, in particular considering, considering the image of God, the Imago Dei, which we'll dive into now. But we need to take a step back and remember where we are in the Heidelberg Catechism because of these questions that we just read from the Heidelberg Catechism, they logically flow out of what we considered last week, right? We considered last week how the law of God shows us that mankind is wicked and perverse, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And so the logical question that the Heidelberg Catechism asks here is, did God create man in that way? Did God create man wicked and perverse? In other words, whose fault is it, right? If this were the game of Clue, right, the questions would be who killed the man in the garden with what weapon and what was the motive? And the answers to those questions are as follows. Who killed mankind? Man himself. With what? With his own free will. What was the motive? Well, we know he wanted to be equal with God. The questions we read tonight, they deal primarily with that first question, uh, who killed mankind? Who's at fault here? And the next next week, uh, next Lord's Day, we'll be looking at more of the questions of the how and the why behind that. So in brief, to answer the question, was mankind's fall God's fault? Well, the answer here is absolutely not, definitely not. And how do we know that? Well, from a variety of ways, but in particular, we see that God's own word here that we read in Genesis emphasizes the fact that God made humanity very good. He made humanity in the beginning upright and holy and righteous, not in any way inclined or disposed to do evil, not in any way, but always disposed in that sense to do what is right. But at the same time that God made man very good, he also made mankind break a bull, break a bull in the sense that he was, there was a real sense in which humanity could break, right? In a real sense, God did not want humanity to break, uh, but also God, it seems, by his design and purpose, wanted mankind in the beginning to have the free will to choose for himself there in the garden, to love me or to love something else. And Adam and Eve, of course, they chose, they chose poorly, They chose by their own free will to break themselves. In a sense, as we looked at this morning, they chose the love of self over the love of God and love of neighbor. And because of that willful decision, we are now all born broken, wicked, and perverse. We can imagine it in this way. Imagine, say, an interior design company that produces artwork that's maybe sold in Target or someplace, right? that they have a prototype of an art piece that they want to make copies of to sell on mass, you know, mass production, right? But right before that company uses the model for creating it as, uh, or for using it to make replicas, to make copies, imagine it breaks or it gets a smear upon it, right? Well, the people in charge of making those replicas, they get that broken version and they don't know that it's broken. They don't know that that wasn't the artist's original design. And so then what would the replicas look like? Well, they would still look like the original art piece, right? But they would all be the broken version of that art piece. 
And that's what we are. That's what we are. We are the broken versions of the image of God. Replicas of Adam and Eve in their broken state. The Latin phrase for the image of God is something that we should kind of remember and and keep in our minds. The imago Dei. The image of God. And we consider tonight that at that very first moment of our personal existence. Think of that. I I mention this with my boys often. There was a moment when you did not exist before your conception, right? But when, when you were conceived there by God's holy design, you began, right, as a human being. And you were at that very moment of conception an image of God. And therefore, every human individual is by nature an imago Dei. We are of the same nature as Adam and Eve, all derived from the same original dust, originally formed by God. But what is the Imago Dei? Well, it's kind of hard to define, and so this is my attempt here, and I have some quotes as well. The Imago Dei is our human nature, our whole human nature, body and soul, which was made to reflect our Creator by living in harmonious relationship with Him and all of His creation. So it's not something that we have so much as something that we were made to be and called to live out. So not something so much that we have, but something we are made to be and to live out. Dr. Michael Horton, my professor at seminary, he says it this way. The image of God is not something in us that is semi-divine, but something between us and God that constitutes a covenantal relationship. To put it differently, it is not because of our soul or intellect that we are ranked higher than our fellow creatures, but because we have been created in the wholeness of our body and soul identity with a special commission for a special relationship with God. And so it's that special relationship that that God has initiated with us, with humanity and the commission, the task that he gave us as well that sets us apart from the rest of his creatures. And we see in Genesis 1, what we read is that God blessed that first couple so that they would be a blessing to others, so that they would represent God and bring the fullness of his blessing to all the earth. Again, Horton says this, Adam's calling was to lead the whole creation into God's everlasting shalom, signified and sealed by the tree of life. So we see in this, we see some really important truths that we need to consider. The Bible is claiming that we were all created with special dignity and value, and also with a glorious goal built into our own nature. We were made for more. We were made to experience relationship with God. We were made for eternity. We were made for glory. Now, what is the alternative? The most popular alternative today, perhaps, is the naturalistic worldview, which is very popular. And so we can consider that for a second. If, you, if humanity, according to the naturalistic worldview, if humanity is just a chaotic biological accident, a lucky animal and nothing more in the grand scheme of things, then all meaning and all purpose that we that we seem to experience is an illusion. There's really no purpose from which we came and no lasting purpose to where we are going. Not only that, think of this, that eventually our star, the sun, it will run out of energy. 
It's not a limitless source of energy. One day it's going to run out of energy. And at that point, the earth will no longer be able to sustain life. And so as Michel Foucault points out, man is about to be erased like a face drawn in the sand at the edge of the sea. That's how fickle, how fragile humanity is. And in a sense, according to the naturalistic worldview, well, purposeless in a sense. According to that worldview, this unbiblical worldview, well, humans don't have any more inherent dignity than any other particle of dust in the cosmos. And they don't have any more inherent purpose than dust either. Accordingly, any sense or feeling of significance or purpose that we might have is something that we have conjured up ourselves. We've created a sort of illusion in ourselves. Now, not only is that worldview dreadfully depressing, it really is, but it's also dreadfully destructive in this way when it's played out into society. Because if human beings are not inherently more valuable than other living things like animals, trees, or microorganisms, then why protect, why safeguard the lives of other human beings over the life of other things? Why protect life at all? Why care about justice? Why care about what is good and right and true and fair if we're all just going to die and if humanity is going to be erased like a face drawn in the sand at the edge of the sea? So we can learn from this how relevant, how practical this teaching is, how we understand what is the image of God, how we understand who we are as humans. And our understanding of humanity as uniquely made in the image of God is the basis for our ethics, our moral system of how we react and treat one another. We were created by God with the responsibility to deal with him first and foremost, and then also to deal with each other, giving due respect and honor to God and also to our neighbor as image bearers of God. As the Heidelberg Catechism says here, God created man good and in his own image with this ethical responsibility, it says, so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. So we learn that God created us and equipped us in our human nature, body and soul to live in blessed communion with God and with our neighbor. So that's our understanding of the image of God. But then why, why is it then that we were, we're all so messed up and broken? And again, we go back to what the Heidelberg Catechism is pointing out, that it comes from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the paradise. And that this fall so poisoned our nature that we are now all conceived and born in sin. This is what Paul it's taught us in Romans 5, 12, where he says that sin came into the world and through one man, death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So from that, we learn that Adam in the beginning, he broke humanity. But then we also need to realize that we have been breaking humanity into smaller and smaller pieces ever since we first had that original break with God. We're all guilty of this and we share in the guilt of Adam and that leaves us with this question, that after the fall, does man still retain the image of God? Do we still, do we still have that title with us? 
And in our Reformed tradition, as a Reformed church here, we distinguish between the broader and the narrow image of God. And Louis Burkhoff says it this way, the broader image of God consists of man's spiritual, rational, moral, and immortal being. And this was obscured, but not lost by sin. The narrow images of God consist in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. This was lost by sin and is restored in Christ. And so we see in that that there's a sense in which we have lost. We have lost part of the image of God, but still the image of God is retained by each and every individual in this world, which is why later parts of the Bible, man is still called the image or image bearer. For example, in Genesis 9, 6, it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So it doesn't matter who it is. If someone sheds blood unjustly, if someone kills another image of God, well, that is a great offense to God. James 3, 9 says this, with it, that our tongue, we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so from this, from these texts, we believe that no human being has lost entirely the image of God. Why? Because it is essential to our being. In a sense, to be human is to be the image of God. But now that image is marred, it's smeared, it's disfigured. We now have impurities that stain and cover the image of God so that the image of God is more or less pure in each person. Think of that. The image of God is preserved more or less purely in each person, kind of like silver. It's the illustration that Isaiah used in our text this morning, silver that has more or less dross upon it, impurities upon it. And, and, and so we see that in a, same way, in a similar way, each person is still the image of God, but more or less pure. Why is this important? It means that every single human being is still an image of God. And therefore, by creating them in his likeness, God has made every individual with inherent dignity, dignity that is derived from God himself. Think of this. Every human that's walking on the face of this earth today, every human, even your enemies that you consider your enemies, each one is a walking image of God. Now, how do you think that should shape the way we treat other humans, even our enemies? Well, it means that we should treat every human with dignity, respect, and fairness. This is why this is so important for us. Keeping this doctrine of the image of God, the Imago Dei before us, keeps us from treating others as less than human. Very important. Whenever civilizations in history or today, in our current time, whenever they segregate, subdue, and subject people groups based on things like their skin tone or their religion or their economic status, what are they doing? They're trampling upon the image of God. Think of this. If I were to take a picture of you, or even worse, a picture of your mother, and threw it on the ground and then started stomping on it, trampling upon it, how would that make you feel? You would be livid, right? Steam coming out your ears, red, right? Like a tomato. You'd be super angry. 
Well, that is what we do to God when we disrespect and treat unfairly other human beings. Why? Because they are the image of God. When we do that, when we disrespect other human beings, we're trampling upon that image of God represented in them. Now, again, what is the alternative? Well, the secular worldview says that we are nothing more than advanced, lucky animals. And so without the concept of the Imago Dei, what would keep us from subjugating the weak and the vulnerable of society? Why not, right? Why honor and respect the weak links in the human race? Why not just trample upon the weak so that the strongest and the fittest survive? Again, we see how important it is to keep before us the doctrine of the Imago Dei, this image of God, in order to keep us from treating other human beings as something less than human. So let's consider now the last question in the Heidelberg Catechism for this Lord's Day. Why are we so corrupt that we are, are, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Is the corruption that bad? Yes, yes it is. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. We, we see here what we find also in Romans chapter 5, which we read, is that humanity is kind of like this dead, rotten tree. It is totally corrupt all the way down to its root, the first man, Adam. Therefore, what needs to happen is a new seed, a new root system, right? And this is what Paul says that God has done by sending his own son to be the last Adam. As Paul says in Colossians, he who is the, the very image of the invisible God. He says in Romans five seventeen, for if by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, in his one act of obedience, which refers to him on the cross, suffering there for us. Think of this. God himself willingly came in our image to be trampled under our feet, so to speak. Why? In order to restore the image of God in us, in order to renew us in his image. What love, what grace he has shown us. And we see that our corruption, our corruption, this, the root system itself is corrupt. And so we need that new root. We need that new head of humanity. This, it's so comprehensive, the corruption in scope, that it reaches every part of our being. You know, total depravity, we throw that term around. It refers to the corruption of our desiring, our thinking, our doing. Nothing is untouched by sin. Every aspect of us has been affected. And now, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we are morally inclined toward all evil by nature. And this especially comes from a passage like Romans 8, 7 through 9, where it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So this is Romans 8, 7 through 9. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that's the passage. And what Paul is claiming here is that there are really only two kinds of people, two kinds of humans in this world. 
There are, we can say, type Adam, those that are of the sinful flesh, and type Christ, those who are of the Holy Spirit. Paul's claiming that apart from the Spirit of God coming to dwell within a human, that every single human is type Adam. They are only sinful, only hostile towards God, and they do not submit to God's law. Why, he says? Because they cannot. It's a thing of ability. They are not able to. Paul is saying the type Adam people are incapable of doing what God demands of us. That's how bad we are. We are not able to obey God. And that even includes not able to repent and believe in the gospel. And so type Adam people are not able in and of themselves to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so how is it that some make that transition from type Adam to type Christ? Well, they are those whom the Holy Spirit enters to bring about a new birth, regeneration. And we can kind of rewind and clarify here that both type Adam and type Christ are both still images of God? Yes, yes, they are, with inherent dignity. And that means that we owe respect and justice and fairness to all human beings, not just those who are filled with the Spirit, but all human beings deserve that kind of respect and dignity, right? Should we be proud of entering into the next generation, so to speak, of humanity, which is now headed by Jesus Christ? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we should be proud of Jesus' accomplishments for us. We should boast in the Lord and what he has done for us in his grace, in his humility, in his love. But no, in the sense that we have not been included into the humanity type Christ by our own merits, by our own initiative, no, but by Christ alone through the working of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God. It is only by the monergistic work of the Spirit. That is, the one, he was the only one working to bring us to faith in Christ. It is only by the Spirit that we have come to believe. God alone has worked to restore in us fully his image and his likeness. And that fullness is still yet to come when we are resurrected and fully renewed in the image of God in the last day. And so, what should this leave us with? It should fill us with a sense of gratitude, making our boast in the Lord alone. And also, we should walk as as those who have royal dignity, as images of God. And we should also treat one another with due respect, love, and fairness. Because every human, no matter how fallen, is still a royal dignitary of our creator. Remember that. So for, and also by honoring one another in that way, by honoring other image bearers, we are honoring the God in whose image they were created. We'll leave, leave it with that. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for this brief time to consider this weighty and significant truth that is so relevant in our current moment. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would impress upon our hearts the full truth of us being made in your image as your image and how that should change the way we treat one another and how we we should respond in gratitude and thankfulness to you in loving relationship with you and with one another lord in in this current day and age may you keep always before us uh, 
this concept, this truth that we are the imago Dei, lest we treat one another as something less than human. Uh, remind us day by day that each of us, uh, we, we are images of God and royal dignitaries of our creator. Uh, Lord, we thank you for what Christ has done, your own son, uh, willingly being trampled underfoot here by sinners in order to restore us to that image in its fullness. Lord, may we live by your spirit to honor and glorify you all our days. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.